Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And this morning, we're going to be reading Psalm 12, and you can find it in the Black Pew Bible on page 452. I'll give you a moment to turn there, and then we'll read together. Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes the great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl. And the, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning to you all. My name is Greg Aulis. I'm one of the elders here at Redemption Church, and it's my privilege to preach on one of the Psalms today. Uh, Danny's kind of enjoying a staycation the last couple of three weeks, and uh, we're glad he's had that break. Um, so today we want to look at Psalm 12. He who controls the narrative controls the people. Maybe you've heard this statement. It's, it's kind of a well-known saying from George Orwell's classic book, 1984. And it expresses a truth that is behind what we refer to as competing narratives in our world. You probably realize there's great effort expended by political parties, the media, government, professional sports teams, corporations, and powerful interest groups to control the narrative we hear around us and thereby exert control to one degree or another over people. What is a narrative? Well, a narrative is just a story about reality that we believe to be true. It's an explanation about events that give the events meaning. Now, most often these narratives compete with one another for our loyalty, for our belief, for our buy-in. And so they, they can oftentimes seem very contradictory. Here are just a few examples of some of the narratives that we hear around us that are competing. January 6th was an insurrection that almost ended our democracy, or it was a mostly peaceful protest that got a little out of hand. COVID was a worldwide pandemic as serious as the Spanish flu, or it was a new virus that was a little, more, little worse than the common flu. Masks work, or they are of very little use. The COVID vaccine was a modern medical miracle that should be taken by everyone, or it may have some risks and some benefits and should only be taken by those in mortal danger of COVID. Abortion is a woman's fundamental right and should never be opposed. Or, abortion is a great evil that has murdered millions of children. 
LGBTQ plus people have been a persecuted minority who have been unjustly treated, and we should affirm their lifestyle as normal and good. Or this community should be treated fairly, but their sexual preferences are unnatural and should not be promoted, especially to children. Money can't buy happiness. Or, if I could make a little more money, I think I'd be happier. And more seriously, God created the universe with all of its beauty, complexity, and order. Or, we don't know how the universe came into being, and it may be eternal or part of a multiverse. God created life on earth, or we don't know how life began, but it was probably the result of random chance. Mankind is God's special creation made in his image to rule the earth, or man is just another animal whose brains have developed a bit more than our animal cousins through evolution. Mankind's biggest problem is his broken relationship with God, and the world will be broken until that is repaired, or there is no God, and man is capable of, capable of creating the world of his dreams as he continues to progress in the evolutionary process. There is no life after death, or there is eternal life after death in paradise or hell. Now, these are just a few examples of the kinds of narratives that are competing for our loyalty all the time. And in the midst of these seemingly contradictory messages, several questions arise. How do we know what is true? Is it even possible to know the truth? Is it possible that we could know the truth when a majority of people around us believe the exact opposite? Would they then be believing lies? And is it arrogant to claim to know the truth, especially when it would expose other beliefs as lies? What should we do with biblical narratives that conflict with popular narratives of our day that pressure us to abandon the Bible? How should we respond in a world of competing narratives. These are some of the questions that I want us to think about as we look at Psalm 12. And Psalm 12 teaches us that our first response when struggling with these questions of truth should always be to go to the Lord in prayer. That's the response that we see in Psalm 12 when David feels alone in a world of lies. And when we go to the Lord, we are reminded of our big idea for today. In a world of competing narratives, it is the Lord's narrative that is true and can be trusted to keep us from being deceived. In a world of competing narratives, it is the Lord's narrative that is true and can be trusted to keep us from being deceived. In Psalm 12, the psalmist finds himself feeling alone and threatened as he is surrounded by lies. Now, this psalm is attributed to David, and it seems to reflect the period of his life, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, when King Saul turned away from being David's friend and father-in-law to his bitter enemy, turning the whole nation of Israel against David and accusing him of being a traitor. For many years, David 
was on the run, hiding in caves as Saul and the army of Israel hunted for his life. Being the king, Saul controlled the narrative with lies about David. And he promoted men to positions of power who supported Saul's narrative so that in the end, David had to flee the land of his birth to, his, to the land of his enemies, the Philistines. Now, it may have been this experience that at some point in his life caused David to reflect on how to pray and what to do when you feel surrounded and threatened by lies. Let's take a closer look at this psalm by starting with our first point this morning, a prayer for salvation in verses 1 to 2. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Now, the psalmist here portrays himself as the last godly and faithful person on earth. This is certainly some hyperbole here, but it's not far-fetched to think that at least among those in power during David's you know, time, those controlling the narratives of the day, that there were no godly and faithful persons to be found. Who are these godly and faithful people? Well, the godly are those who recognize God as the creator, as the sovereign ruler of mankind, who we are ultimately responsible to. We feel and sense an accountability to him. And it is one's godly perspective that produces this faithfulness, an honesty, a trustworthiness, an integrity, because these character traits are reflective of God and are important to those who acknowledge God in their lives. But when those people are missing, when those godly, faithful people disappear and are not in positions of influence, speech becomes a vehicle of self-promotion. There is no longer a concern for truth, but lies and flattery dominate speech if they can help one take advantage of others and get ahead. Although the flattery may feel good and even become addicting, one can never trust the heart it is coming from, and an ulterior motive is lurking behind the double heart of verse 2. As the psalmist feels threatened by the lies around him, he prays that the Lord would save him. And what is, what is he praying that the Lord would save him from? Well, obviously, he's praying that he would save him from the lies that are around him and threaten him. Then he goes one step further in our second point for the day, a prayer to end ungodly speech in verses 3 to 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? It's this last phrase that is so instructive. Who is master over us? This is the heart of the ungodly person, and especially the ungodly in positions of power. They recognize no accountability to anyone. They have no master. They see the world as a place where humans are competing for power and dominance. And with their tongues and lips, that is their speech, they believe that they can prevail. They can have dominance over others. They subscribe to the maximum. He who controls the narrative controls the people. And because these people control the narrative and see no other master above them, they rule. 
The psalmist is here asking the Lord to show these ungodly people and all the world that they do, they do have a master over them. And he thinks this will be best displayed by cutting off their flattering lips and boastful tongues, which may be a way of saying, bring their false narratives to an end. This prayer is really a longing for the truth to prevail instead of lies. In, so, in verses 5 to 7, we see the Lord's answers to the, to the psalmist's prayers in our third point this morning, the Lord's salvation. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. It is now that the Lord speaks in contrast to the speech of the ungodly in verse 4. Notice when the Lord arises and begins to act. It's when the poor are plundered. It's when the needy groan and they long for safety and they cry out to him. It is as if the Lord allows the word wars and the narrative battles to go on until the poor and needy cry out to him in their suffering. God is the ultimate social justice warrior and he will come to the aid of the oppressed when they call to him. God's promise here is that he will place them in the safety for which they long. How is he going to do that? Is he going to physically cut off the wicked by maybe killing them or somehow removing them from power? No, that's not what this psalm teaches us. Verses 6 to 7 show us that God is going to protect them through his words. Notice verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. This is one of those verses in the Bible that speaks about the words of the Lord in such an, uh, an exalted way. And I don't know how many times furnace was normally, how many times silver was normally um, refined in a furnace in David's day. But we know that the, the number seven is sort of a symbolic number in Scripture. It's the number of completeness. And so the idea here is that this furnace has been completely purified. And that's the way the words of the Lord are. They are completely pure. And they stand in sharp contrast to the words of lies and boasts of the ungodly people in the world around us. And so in a world where, where we cannot trust everything that we hear, God's words come in and they are pure words. They are the purest of words that we can fully trust and put our confidence in. This is God's salvation. This is God's answer. This is the way he keeps his people safe and secure and guards them. The second prayer of the psalmist is not answered in this psalm. God does not cut off the lips and tongues of the wicked. We see this in verse 8. The continuing ungodly triumph. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So as the psalm ends... The situation of the psalmist has not changed except that he sees God's salvation through God's words. But on every side, the wicked continue to prowl. Now, this word prowl can also mean strut about. It's the idea or the picture of a football player strutting in the end zone after he's made a touchdown or a, 
a basketball player pounding his chest after an incredible move or shot. The idea is that the wicked are proudly strutting about as if they dominate, as if they rule. And, and, and as they strut about, vileness is exalted, it says here. Now, the word vileness can also be translated emptiness or worthlessness. And so as the wicked strut about, vile emptiness is exalted. It's honored. Now, the Word of God calls us to honor and exalt God and what he says is good and holy and pure and true. But when the ungodly control the narratives around us, that which the Word of the Lord says is vile and worthless is honored and exalted in the world of men. And it's in this world of lies that the pure words of the Lord enter. And they are the result of the Lord arising to keep and guard us from being swept away in the lies of the world around us and being deceived by all that we hear. It's through the words of the Lord that those who pray to him are saved and guarded from the judgment that will ultimately come upon this ungodly generation of the children of men, as noted in verse 7. So this is the claim of our passage today. In a world of competing narratives, it is the Lord's narrative that is true and can be trusted to keep us from being deceived. Thank you. <laughs> in Psalm 12 and in the world we live in, the, world, the wicked continue to triumph and their, their narratives are dominant. The second prayer of Psalm 12 has not yet been answered. The lips and the tongues of the wicked have not been cut off. But the Lord has acted to save his people. He too has inserted his narrative and his words. So there is a competing narrative. In fact, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this brings us to our first application point today. The gospel is not the controlling narrative, but it is a competing narrative, and it will continue to spread throughout the world. There's a bit of a paradox here in that the gospel is almost never the dominant narrative, but it is often despised and rejected by the majority of people in the world. In fact, in many places in the world today, it is illegal to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet it continues to spread. Jesus said it would spread like leaven or yeast in dough, almost imperceptibly. And this is one of the things we have to kind of wrestle with. The gospel is not best promoted by powerful world leaders or famous media stars, but rather by normal, everyday people who are enjoying the reality of reconciliation with God, and by churches, communities of redeemed believers upholding the truth and demonstrating the love of Christ to the world. That's how God spreads his word. However it happens, Jesus has made this promise in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It may not be the dominant narrative, but God has made sure that it will be a competing narrative, and all will hear at some point before history concludes. Now, what is the gospel narrative that God has made known and competes for our belief? Well, it goes something like this. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He made mankind in his image to rule the earth, walking in obedience to him. 
Humans have rebelled against him and brought death into the world through their sin. In his mercy and grace, God has made a way for man to be forgiven and reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has proved that he is the Son of God by rising from the dead and has promised to return for those who trust and follow him. He invites all who are weary to come to him and find rest. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe this to be the true narrative that will determine the destiny of every human being. And yet, it is so rarely believed and often despised and rejected. Psalm 12 teaches us not to be surprised by this, for it has always been this way in this fallen world. Fallen man comes up with many false narratives that flatter us with ideas of how great man is and that we do not need a Savior. We can save ourselves. No other religion proclaims a Savior has come, but rather teaches that we must be good enough to save ourselves. In the West, many are leaving behind the idea of God altogether and looking to science and technology as the hope of mankind. Nevertheless, the pure words of God stand and keep and guard us from the false hopes of the world around us. This leads us to our second point. God's word is not the controlling narrative, but it is the truth about reality. There are so many messages swirling around us, and in America, we love polls, right? If a majority of people agree about something, that becomes the controlling narrative that rules the day. Is marriage between a man and a woman, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, a person and themselves, a man and his dog, a woman and her cat? The possibilities are endless once you abandon God and see the opportunity to determine truth through public opinion and control of the narrative. But what ultimately happens in this kind of situation is that people give up on truth altogether. And for many people in our world today, they are not sure that truth exists or that if it does exist, the feeling is that we cannot know it. Truth for many has become relative. What is true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. We determine truth for ourselves, and therefore, the goal is to be authentic and to live out your truth. This is a very high value in our society, maybe the highest value in our society. And it is very unpopular to claim to know a truth outside of ourselves that may contradict and call into question the truth that we believe about ourselves or about the world around us. This is why the Bible and its claim to be the true words from God and the call to repent of our ideas and believe God's words is very unpopular today in our majority culture. The pressure and temptation to conform to the world around us is very strong, and we often cry out, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies. And in response, God brings us his pure words of truth and we find the freedom that Jesus promised in John 8:31 to 32. Notice Jesus said here, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice that Jesus says something here very striking. He says that we can know the truth. This is central to the salvation and freedom that he offers us so that we will not end up like Pilate, the Roman governor who condemned Jesus to death, when when Jesus, the truth incarnate, was standing on trial before him. We see a fascinating passage in John 18, 37 to 38, this profound exchange between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate, and this is what it says here, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Like many today, Pilate had given up on truth. All he knew was power, and he knew that he had the power and authority to either release Jesus or crucify him. And there were two narratives competing for the life of Jesus. One narrative said that he falsely claimed to be a king and therefore deserved death as a traitor to both the Jews and the Romans. And the other narrative was Jesus' own testimony that he is the king whose kingdom is not of this world, but he came to save both the Jews and the Romans from their sin. This is the truth that sets us free, but it is so often drowned out by the shouts of the mob and the corrupting narratives of the day that it ends up being crucified by those in power who no longer believe there is truth. But the truth cannot be so easily dispensed with, and it always rises from the dead to indestructible life. And this is the truth that we are called to know and live. And that leads us to our final application point here today. As the church, we are called to know, live, and proclaim the truth of God's word. Jesus not only promised freedom from lies when we abide in his words and know the truth, but he also prayed in John 17, 14 through 17, that we would be purified by the truth of his word in the midst of a world of lies. These words come from Jesus' high priestly prayer, and they go like this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, there's a lot in these verses, but notice that Jesus makes clear that the world will hate us because of the words of truth that he has given to us. Nevertheless, he is sending us with this truth into the world that hates us, and he promises to keep us from the evil one as we are sanctified by the truth. This is the same idea we read of in Psalm 12, just a little more developed. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 12, of keeping us and protecting us through his word. And this is Jesus' call to us, his church, to be sanctified in his word and to live out that sanctification in the world around us. Paul said it this way in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may know what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we renew our minds with God's true and pure words, we are transformed and we actually know what God's will is and how to live out his good and perfect will in our lives. This is why God's word is so central to our worship service here at Redemption and our small groups. This is why we as the pastors and elders at Redemption recognize our primary responsibility is to preach and teach God's word since it is through his word that we will all grow to maturity in Christ so that we are not deceived by the lies in the world around us. This is to be the result of the pastors and teachers' ministry. This is what Paul makes clear in when he talks about pastoral ministry in Ephesians 4.14, he says one of the results should be this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Notice how Paul describes the person who is not yet sanctified in the truth. They're like children in a boat on the waves of the ocean, tossed and carried about by cunning human lies. But as we speak the truth in love, we grow up to be like Christ. That's our goal. That's our goal here at Redemption Church. And as we pursue together becoming like Christ, I want to end today's message with a few questions for us to ponder from Psalm 12. The first question is this. How central are God's pure words in your life? Is God's word sanctifying you? Are you reading and meditating on God's word? Is your mind given to being transformed by God's word? Or are there other messages and narratives that are having a greater sway on your mind? So the goal is not just to read the Bible for a week or a month or even a year, but really for the rest of our lives so that we begin to think biblically. We begin to, as the Bible says, we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to see the world from God's perspective. An old preacher said we should be so full of the word of God that if a bee bit us, it'd fly away singing, there's power in the blood. But the truth is, we will not grow to be like Jesus without his word dominating our minds. The second question for us to consider today is, are you considering the sources? Are your sources of information and messaging godly and faithful sources that you can trust? Or are they people who say, who's master over me? This is especially important when we discern we are being drawn to certain podcasts, videos, movies, music, or other sources of information and entertainment. It is a sign of maturity to trace them back to their source and then ask ourselves if we can trust the narratives that we are hearing. Self-reflection is very important here, and we need to grow in evaluating what messages we are believing. Lies can be flattering, And they can sound really good. We can be drawn to them. So we need to be aware of our weaknesses and what lies sound persuasive to us. And finally, the last question I would encourage us to ask today is, who or what is being exalted? 
Jesus exalted and honored God the Father. And when we become like him, we will do the same. In almost every narrative we hear, something is being pushed forward. Some goal is ultimately being pursued. Discerning what these ends are in the competing narratives around us and rejecting those that honor what God says in his word is empty and vile is key to knowing and living out the truth. I realize these are fairly basic principles from Psalm 12 for living the Christian life. You've probably been probably familiar with them, probably have heard these kinds of things before. But I think they're good reminders for us, and we constantly need to come back to them, especially as we are reminded of the great effort by the powers that be to control us by controlling the narratives we believe. He who controls the narrative controls the people, But God has inserted his word as a competing narrative and the truth that will set us free and save us from the lies around us. As his church, we are called to live in the freedom and sanctification of his truth. May God help us as we pray to him for his salvation. Join me in a word of prayer as we close this morning. Father, we do thank you for these words from Psalm 12 and and from the rest of your scriptures as well. And sometimes we feel it more than others, Lord, but sometimes we do feel like it's hard to know who to believe. It's hard to know who we can trust. We thank you, Father, for your pure, trustworthy words. It's, It's a great gift. It's a precious gift. It's a salvation to us. It's the truth that we can depend upon. And so I pray, Father, that you would keep us, you would guard us, you would protect us in your truth and in Jesus Christ, the truth incarnate. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.